0: which brings us to our next speaker, Dave Carmody, who's a psychiatry trainee with a fervent love of obscure world politics and boot polishing. He is hoping one day to write his memoir, How to Lose Your Temper Attaching a Bag Rail to a Motorbike and 30 Other Moments of Emotional Lability. Dave. Thanks, Az. Um Tonight, I wanted to talk to you about... Um, how psychiatry diagnoses, uh, psychiatric diagnoses, are like hand planes. Um, hand planes are tools you use for shaping wood. They've got like a, a wooden handle and then sort of a, a, a blade underneath that then scrapes away small shavings of wood. Um, and the maker of the best hand planes is a guy called Thomas Lee Nielsen in the States, in Maine. Um, in the 1970s, he, he noticed that the standard of hand planes over the 20th century had really deteriorated quite, quite uh, significantly, and so what he decided to do this is because you know they were being mass-produced with sort of cheaper, you know, plastics and metals and things like that rather than handmade with wood. So he decided to buy uh, the plans for some 18th century and early 20th century, uh, 19th century and early 20th century hand planes from England, and he started making these, um, and now they're they're among the best in the world. Um, this will get more relevant as we go along. Um, I want to. The main topic is a guy called Emil Kraepelin. He's a German guy. Uh, he's born in 1856 in Neustrelitz in northern Germany. Uh, he's the son of a musician and storyteller, which you know is, is appropriate. Um, he studied medicine in Munich. Uh, very ambitious guy. Um, he got a physician's assistant job whilst a student, which had never been done in Munich. Munich had never heard of such a thing. And they, uh, he studied with a guy called Professor Wilhelm Wundt, Wundt. And this is another reason why I'll never be, you know, a particularly good psychiatrist, is that there's never been one called Dave. They're all, <laughs> they're all, they're all Wilhelms. It's, it gets, it gets tedious. They, um, so he, he was studying with him. Uh, Very ambitious. His one goal, he writes in his memoirs, was to become a professor by the time he was 30. Um, And he was working as as like a medical resident and he got fired from his job actually. Um, He says because he was too dedicated to his research he was doing on the side, another account says that he sucked and was like, he was, you know, he'd had a bad bedside manner and none of his colleagues liked him because he was so up himself. So he was sort of you know plugging away in a little regional hospital this time. So a friend recommended him for a job as a professor in Estonia. Um, so he went and took this job. And so he got what he wanted, uh, which was to become a professor by the time he was 28. But he also got uh, access to a huge number of patients and also to their case notes and their, their case histories. Um, and this allowed for his main contribution to psychiatry, which was to notice that the course of the illness makes a a huge difference to the diagnosis. Um, He developed this hypothesis that specific combinations of symptoms in relation to the course of a psychiatric illness allow one to to define that illness, uh, to define the disorder. Um, His big uh, breakthrough was separating dementia precox at the time, which was sort of correlates kind of with schizophrenia, as we see it today. from Manic Depressive Insanity, which probably correlates with uh, Bipolar. Um, and uh, because one was, although they had overlapping symptoms, they're quite similar when you saw them. They had, uh, one, one was chronic and progressive, and one was episodic. And so that was his big breakthrough. Um, but in order to monitor this, you had to un- have an understanding that there was uh, a course that you needed to follow, but also to describe the symptoms. and. Um, he was a very gifted observer and uh, an excellent writer. Um, he described uh, these patients' sort of words and actions in a way that still feels very fresh and, um, and and sort of really resonates with some of the patients that I see as well. Um, oh, he's got some examples. The patient with psychosis. He says uh, the chairs are moving. The patient hears a murmuring and a whispering, a roaring, the crackling of hell, death gnashing his teeth in the wall. Spirits buzz about each other. Others snarl something, which is con- some connection with the patient, um, a patient with manic depressive insanity or, 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 or a, main, a manic episode, as we'd say today. Um, impulses crowd upon one upon the other, and the coherence of activity is gradually lost. The patient is unable to carry out any plan at all, because new impulses continually intervene, which turn him aside from his original aim. The patient sings, chatters, dances, romps about, does gymnastics, beats time, claps his hands, scolds, threatens, and makes a disturbance. Throws everything on the floor, gets undressed, and decorates himself. Um, apart from these evocative descriptions, um, these observations served another purpose, um, which has been a, a, a long, has been a long-term problem for psychiatry and for, and, and continues to be today, which is that. All the other fancy specialties have, like, microscopes and um, x-rays and stuff. And you can see, like, at this time for for, uh, Kraepelin, uh, you know, Vyakov, end of the 19th century, was sort of showing pathology down microscopes and picking up, you know, germ theory and bugs and things like that. But whereas for psychiatry, you have a a patient in front of you who has something going on, you know, there's something probably with their head, I guess, Probably if you were to localise it somewhere. Um, and anatomically and it um, but it's sort of how to describe that and how to convince other people that there is something and it's a definite thing and then study it and try and come up with treatments for it. So that's sort of what's led to over the course of the 20th century um, and you've probably heard about this the the DSM the Diagnostic Statistical Manual which is published by the APA the American Psychiatric Association and they make a tonne of money out of it. Um, But the purpose originally was to uh, establish some definitions that you could then um, use in study and use to talk to other clinicians about what something was. So if you're gonna study uh, a treatment for depression, you need to know what depression is so you can know that you've got the same populations across studies and things like that. Um, The original, or one of the early DSMs, DSM-3, uh, had a, a, a disclaimer saying that uh, the diagnosis, the diagnoses, are not necessarily leading to specific treatments. Whereas now uh, it's evolved since then to now DSM five, which has in the the intro, it's it's it, just, it claims it's the authoritative guide to uh, uh, diagnosis of mental disorders and invaluable for clinicians. So it's really evolved from something which was a a, a tool for studies to being the way that you talk about uh, mental illness. Um, Kreplin's ideas of linking a group of symptoms plus how it evolves over time and then saying that's a disorder has become now the only way that we talk about uh, mental illness. Um, uh, And and you you have with that the the, the problem that, sort of the corollary of that is that if everything is in the DSM, if it's not, if it's something that isn't in the DSM, it doesn't exist. And so it really constrains you in terms of how you can then describe and define these illnesses. you know, human experience and all that sort of stuff. So um, there's, there's an ongoing debate about this, whether these diag- diagnoses are actually valid. Um, they're useful because you can do studies and get funding and tell someone that they've got depression or whatever. Um, but it doesn't actually mean that that, that exists as a, as a discrete entity. Um, over time, it's sort of, it sort of—it seems to—the pressures of twentieth century in terms of funding, in terms of access to things like, um, you know, like funding for studies, the pharmaceutical industry has driven this a lot because they need to have diseases so they can then make treatments. Um, so it's sort of changed over time; it's been distorted. Um, for Kraepelin, uh as he got older, he, you know, he. He was a pretty big fizz. He was an esteemed academic. He set up the German Psychiatry Institute, which was then replicated all around the world, um, published all the seminal textbooks. Um, he gradually became more consumed with uh, theories of, of sort of social psychology. Um, and this was early 20th century Germany, so that in, inevitably involved eugenics. And he, got, he was pretty into eugenics, really. He got probably, probably too much, I would say. Uh, <laughs> way too much into into eugenics he was right right into that degeneration theory all that sort of stuff linked you know linking some of his biological theories of of, of mental illness to then you know racial groups particularly you know certain groups so um, he was also prone to dismiss women as, as hysterical which was pretty fashionable um, and uh, lacking control of volition and all that sort of stuff he also he he, he hated freud um, and, you know, disregarded psychoanalysis as being um, hooey um, but I don't think he described it as that. But he he, he didn't like it and he was, he, he, you know, um, he was pretty much ended up just talking about eugenics the whole time and uh, died penniless and, and alone. I, th- I, I don't know, he, I, I, never, I never read that but I figure that's probably what happens. <laughs> After that, sort of, you know, uh, he so he had what started out as, as quite a, a nifty way of describing um, patient suffering, being very curious um, and communicating, and, and really communicating this curiosity that he had about people's experiences, um, and, and attempt to link, and, and it was an attempt to link clinical observations with treatment and outcomes, um, and despite all the money we spent on you know, CTs and functional MRIs and EEGs and all the rest of it. Um, this, it's still the most useful tool in psychiatry, is, is observing and describing what you see and then following it up over a period of time. Um, now, however, the, the DSM approach has probably uh, uh, become something that, that may in some way limit our ability to describe the various aspects of, of, of experience, um, you know, limiting sort of you yeah, something horrific happens and you get adjustment disorder or, you know, you lose someone and it becomes, you know, sort of a, a complicated grief or something. You know, there's, there's certain terms that we have to use now that probably don't describe it as evocatively as, as Kraepelin would have. Um, I think it isn't, you know, it isn't great to glorify the past, especially when there's eugenics involved, but sometimes there's, uh, you know, whether it's hand planes or, or psychiatry, um, I think there's sometimes the older ways of doing things were better and uh, we can learn a lot from them. Thanks very much guys.